Hello and welcome to Stuff That Interests Me with me, Dominic Frisby. Now, there's a certain category of comedian. I don't know what the name is for this category of comedian, but they've been going normally 20 or 25 years. They haven't quite made it perhaps as big as they should have on the telly, but nevertheless, they've got fantastic acts, which all the other comics will always watch, and that act can usually play any room at any given time, almost. And in that category, I put people like Mike Gunn, Phil Nickel, Roger Monkhouse, people like this, and also the man sitting opposite me, who is an old friend of mine. He is Ben Norris. Hello, Ben. Welcome to the programme. Thanks for having me. This is a lovely studio. It is a lovely studio. Now, what are we going to talk about? We are going to talk about the state of comedy, but we are also going to investigate... Ben is quite passionately left-wing, whereas I'm quite libertarian in my politics, and I want to have a healthy argument with Ben about various issues and we're just going to see where it takes us. We're neither of us political experts, it's going to be very much a sort of pub level type of argument. But before we do that, Ben, let me just quickly, to, by way of a kind of warm up, let's yeah. just talk about comedy at the moment. What, what do you think about comedy? Where is it? Well, it's not left wing enough, is it, for a start? Um, really? Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know if it is. Don't you bring I mean, for the right wing comedy in the 1970s? Well, not so much, although I think there's, there's been a little bit of a return to that, but that's slightly beside the point. Um, I, I, don't think, I don't think the comedy circuit is necessarily sort of the left wing cabal that perhaps some people might suggest that it is. I think a lot of comedians are fairly apolitical and, mm-hmm. and, and surprisingly uninterested. In politics, and I, and I have to say, as you probably know, my my act is is only very lightly peppered with uh, little bits of pub politics, and mm. and not, uh, you know, I don't have an agenda during my comedy because I find it very difficult to be very funny about that. I think it's that's, hard. It I is think hard. that's tricky, as some people who are political comedians prove on a regular basis. <laughs> uh, you know, but that you know, I, I take my hat off to to people who can do that uh, and people who are willing to do that without getting laughs. But um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I'm perhaps t- too, uh, you know, I'm not brave enough to, to uh, speak to, to risk a, that for, for a long period of time w- without that reassuring <laughs> g- giggle from the audience, which is the only, it's oxygen, isn't it, for a comic? It's the only thing that keeps you going. I think left-wing comics certainly... On the circuit, it's, it is changing slightly, as you alluded to, but left-wing comics tend to be more vocal about their politics, and those who lean to the right or maybe libertarian or whatever just keep their politics to themselves because they know that by uttering those kind of views, it's not going to help them, it's not going to get them on TV. Yeah, I think that was definitely the case f- from the 80s through to five to ten years ago. Um, it was too easy for a lefty comic to get a room full of people to agree, you know, that tacit approval of, yay. But I... I was, always, first it was, we hate Thatcher. It was a bit then of Then it was yeah. George Bush is an idiot. Yeah. Now it's Donald Trump's an idiot. Yeah, it's so tr- it's very tricky to find a new way of taking the mickey out of Trump <laughs> because he's, he's already a parody of a, a ludicrous American politician. You cannot believe that he is... Where he's at, and there's, and what's the point in writing anything about a man who writes stuff for himself every day that's funnier than you could ever? You don't mm. need to exaggerate Trump, do you? He's just he is what he is. But, um, but yeah, I was going to say that I think audiences at comedy um, 
I don't think the audiences were as uh, political or lefty as perhaps we thought either. Mm -hmm. I think they kind of went along with a general consensus. But I think if you were to interview them all on the way out of a club, I'd be surprised if uh, many of them were in any way politically active. What I found with, you, you know, I give kind of financial talks and I give and I perform in comedy clubs and I found in the lead up to the Brexit vote, if I would go, who's voting Remain, 90% of the room would be quite vocal about the fact that they were voting yeah. Remain. And you can sort of say that Remain is slightly a left-wing thing. I know it's not quite that yeah. black and white, but sort of. Whereas if I did the same kind of audience survey at a financial talk, it would be the other way. Yes. 80 or 90% of the room would be leavers. And, and yet so, I was reading that a lot of big business uh, wanted us to remain because it's much better for them and business. There's a difference between business and finance. Is there? Yeah. Like oh. I'm talking about people who invest, risk their own capital, rather than a businessman who's like the CEO of a company. Oh, OK. So I think I was talking about people who... Uh, generate wealth. You're talking about people who just have wealth. No, and I'm muck talking about, about the it. people who generate wealth, and okay. you're talking people who muck about with other people's wealth. Oh, okay. So um, if you look at the the kind of Brexit, the 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 the, the people who were in favour of Remain, the business people who were in favour of, like the the Leavers, tended to be entrepreneurs, people who'd started their own businesses, the kind of James Dysons mm. of this world. Whereas the Remainers tended to be, you know, Stuart Rose, the CEO of a large bank, the CEO of a large company, people who's, you know, who hadn't, who'd rather than risen up the ranks by inventing a product and bringing it to market, mm. they'd risen up the ranks by by going up the ranks of a big institution. Yeah. So Remain was much more institutionally supported, whereas Leave was kind of the freer world, if right. you like. OK. Well, that's interesting. I was expecting a big kind of counter-argument from well, you there I, to, to prove me wrong, but you were just kind of nodding away. I'm, 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 prepare, I'm preparing all my uh, ill-thought-out arguments, and I'm going to deploy them... Okay. As well, necessary. should we talk about Brexit then? Because okay. it is the kind of the elephant in the in in, in not just the room, but the entire UK. <clears throat> you voted Remain. Why did you vote Remain? Well, because I, um, I mean, I know I voted Remain. Yes, and I know some people didn't um, do the research, but um, I my <laughs> feeling was that's that's just a gag for my set. Uh, my feeling was that it, it was a complicated issue. There were loads of things about Europe that I wasn't a huge fan of. Um, but there was a, mostly there were things that I did approve of. But my instinct was generally that people that I don't tend to agree with on the right tended to be all for leaving. So mm. my instinct was if they want out, I want in. OK. Uh, so, uh, you know, and I'm a bit, a bit more in, involved than that. But I think there was quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of the regulation that I think you're a sort of an enemy of. Is stuff that I think I generally approve of: uh, food standards, health and safety, things that generally. I don't think we're going to lose food standards by leaving the EU, are we? Are we, are we not? Well, I thought we were going to start importing chlorinated chicken from America. I think that was a red herring. Oh, it's chlorinated herring we're importing. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> but, but uh, yeah, well, you know, um, time will tell. But certainly, I think there are lots of Brexiteers who, for whom their idea of freedom is less regulation on how they make money and they want the freedom to just make money like making money is in and of itself uh, a goal. And I, I would question that whole concept. I, I, 
it's so complicated, isn't it? For a start, is. for a start, I think <clears> that <throat> rampant capitalism is unsustainable in the long term. Mm-hmm. I, th- I just think the planet can't. The planet cannot take it. If we just okay. keep taking the bar graph and going up like that... You see, I would, just... I would counter that, and I would say rampant statism is unsustainable in the long term. OK, why? Because the, the, if we need to define what we mean by capitalism. Mm-hmm. But free markets tend to be... The, the, the biggest creator of waste is generally state, the state. And, you know, waste is... is we are consuming too I much. I thought it was McDonald's, but maybe I got that no, wrong. No, no, no. I think if you look at what waste McDonald's creates in the UK and compare it, say, to the NHS, you'll find that the NHS is far more wasteful. A lot of rubber gloves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do sometimes watch those hospital shows and, and you see how many one-use items there are. Because there are of, a lot. You know, just a pair of those, get them off the bin, there's a syringe that comes is out of the packet, get that in the bin. And obviously... Uh, is the subtext here that we... That is, is the subtext a criticism of my implicit criticism of using rubber, rubber gloves, or are you saying we need to use our rubber gloves better? Uh, I'm not, I'm not I, sure where we are with the I, subtext. I think... <laughs> uh, I think... I bet you there's some old-fashioned ways of doing things that worked just fine. I think some yeah, okay. Some modern things I think like we're one, on rubber like one-use items are mostly for the convenience of those using them and the people selling them, of course. Yeah. Because you, can you imagine if you can get the contract for, for one, rub- one-use rubber gloves for the NHS or any other contract. industry? That's big. Yeah, I mean, now I that, used you to... see, now that would now that conversation about rubber gloves, which yeah. is something I've never studied, and I don't think you have either, so we're maybe not <laughs> <laughs> ideal to be qualified about rubber gloves, but it is a good issue. Now, the person who lands that gig supplying the NHS mm-hmm. with rubber gloves and is then um, beholden to, like, find scientific evidence why we need to use rubber gloves mm-hmm. rather than just wash our hands, they will find that, and then they'll pay some scientists yeah. to, to provide a research report. They'll do advertising campaigns about rubber gloves. Yeah. Now, would you call that... Capitalism. I would say uh, it's certainly a part of it, isn't it? I would call. See, that's what I would call what, what I would define as crony capitalism. Okay. Which is private bodies exploiting government monopolies, mm-hmm. and that's sort of what's happened on the railways, in that private companies have been awarded a monopoly, the license to run a certain line. Yeah. Nobody else can build another line because of planning regulation. So, effectively, they've been handed a monopoly. Yeah. And then it is within their interests to milk that for everything that they possibly can. So, are we on the same page with regards rail privatisation? Yes. That's bad, right? Well, I'm not sure that nationalisation is the answer. But handing private companies monopolies, national monopolies, yeah. is awful, in my opinion. Yeah. We are on the same page. As far Do as not as pass go, collect £200. Do not go to jail. Yeah. Some of them should. But, um, well, I mean, the, the, the rail privatisation hasn't proven very good. That's well, an example of... Uh, I can remember how crap railways were People are paying were more money than ever, and the services is not improving, and yet dividends for the shareholders are going up. So it's another example, isn't it, of the money being... Taken yeah. from the poor and added to the rich, but that and that's is not sort capitalism. of where we're at. Is, is it not? That okay. is crony capitalism. Okay, so so any example of where the money is filtering up and not down? That's no, no. Any example of where a private company is exploiting a, a monopoly that has been handed to it to the by the by the government? Private companies exploiting state monopolies, basically, is crony right. capitalism. 
And we both don't like that. We don't like okay, that. Okay, good. Well, that's, well, that's, that's some stuff. common ground. Um, just little moan. I'm going up to Nottingham tomorrow to do a gig. I didn't, and I've got to leave at like five o'clock, so in the middle of the rush hour. I've left it to the last minute to book my ticket. 190 quid for a return train ticket for Nottingham. Yeah. How can that cost? How can that be? Well, it's, isn't it simply because you have no choice? Yeah. And you've left it late, so they... Yeah. And that, see, that is the kind of... That, isn't that free marketeering? Because that's the sort of thing that I'm appalled by, but it sounds like you are as well. Yeah, I can't stand it. I, I've just come back from Morocco. My flight to Morocco and back cost me 130 quid. Right. So, how can we be on the same page again with this? I mean, this... Well, this is one of the, this is one of the objects of, of, of this kind of conversation, is that... is to try and make people understand what free market means and mm. what capitalism means. Because... What I would describe as capitalist or free market is not like if I said to you free market and anarchy are the same two things. Now, a left winger will dream of, you know, in its purest form, will dream of anarchy and peace and love and all that kind of thing. And a right winger will dream of ultimate free markets. They are the same thing. But, 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 but one but with the a shop. So? Well, <laughs> yes, one with a shop. It's a good game. It's a good yeah. game. Um, but the. <laughs> But the, 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 um, the issue is, is that, that the words have been smeared. The words capitalism and free market have been smeared. And they're going to do the same to the words free speech as, as they've done to free market. They will, you know, because of this whole argument about censorship that's coming up. Yeah. And people think that free markets are evil. They're not. Because they so, don't fully understand what the implications are. So what? So getting back to your extortionate train ticket, yeah, which, where you're you're literally being exploited because you didn't know that you yeah. needed a ticket for Nottingham until today. But it's my fault because I left it at the last well, minute. Is there another way for that? Should there be a cap on prices for for train tickets, for instance? Well, I'm not in favour of intervention. So, you know, mark, that would be market intervention. Some people will say you should intervene. My answer to the, the problem of the railways is that the, you know, the planning laws are such and the, is that nobody else can build another railway line. Oh, so you'd be up for more railway lines? Yeah. All running side by side well, in the same direction? I'm not planning it, but, but with a, you know, the railway lines were born in a free market. We have the railway stations where they were. They all arose in the 1830s and the 1870s, yes. and they were all built. And it all kind of arose organically, and it was a bit chaotic, and there was a big railways bubble, and then most of the companies went bust. Yeah. They were only nationalised, I think, either in the First World War or probably the Second World War, I don't actually know. But so the nationalisation of the railways came later. But the, but yeah, I mean, if, if other people You're, could build railways or alternative forms of transport, right. it, you know. But basically, but competing the railway lines all going in the same directions. You you're obviously joking about that, right? No. Come on, Dominic. Right. Like we have competing railway lines going to Birmingham. We have the Midlands, whatever it's called, and we have the. Uh, they go the slightly Virgin. different routes. Though, they go they? slightly different routes, but they both go from London to Birmingham. Yeah. And and as a result, it, you don't get absolutely crucified if you want to go to Birmingham to the same extent it's true, that you, you do can get if you a want to go to Birmingham. Ticket if you happen to go to Moore Street on a train that's slightly less. Yeah. Looks less like a train. You can do it for about six quid. Yeah, but that's the tiniest amount of competition has enabled. Right. Railways to become affordable. Okay. Well, I approve, and I'm not. I you're, you're, of that. You, if you follow that line logically, we're going to have 20 railway lines all up the same thing. It doesn't happen like that. But the, the competition would improve the service and drive down the price. Okay. Well, that's a good example. I, I, I don't think I want loads more railway lines. No, nor do I. 
uh, or trains. No, but but it has it has to happen. You know, it has has kind of has to happen organically. And this is so theoretical because the, mm. the practicalities of buying all the land you need and getting the permission and blah blah blah. But that's one of the bonkers things about modern life, isn't it? That hardly anybody lives anywhere near where they work. Yeah. And so every day, twice a day for four hours, most of the country are on the move. And they're not really on the move because they're all trying to get through each other. So it's gridlocked in every, in every way. It's a really inefficient way to run the world, isn't it? Terrible. Uh, but I know... And I bet most of those people who are going from A to B would rather be walking half a mile up the road to, to, to B rather than yeah. one hour across London. So there's, that's weird. I think it's really weird <laughs> that, uh, that so many people, especially in this country, seem to work in industries that aren't really industries at all, where there's just no tangible end product. It's just a kind of service industry to another industry. Thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of people who, if you said to them, what did you produce this week? They would say some paperwork. You know, there's no thing coming out the end of the machine. There's just loads of people running a machine, and you say, what's, what's the machine do? Well, it's the machine that makes the paperwork for that machine. Well, and on it goes. Yet again, Ben, we were on the same page, and I, lo- I yearn and long for a return to Britain's great traditions of manufacturing and invention and all those kind of things that we saw in the 19th yes, century. but even that has its problems because we can't keep making things because we're going to run out of stuff. Well, unless the things that we make involve us... Um, using less stuff oh yeah yes we make stuff out of recycled stuff yeah that recycles stuff you know have you are you familiar with with uh in bombay it's um, a, like a slum of bombay that was built on a on a um uh, rubbish tip next to the airport and i it, know what you're gonna say you've bought some property there i wish i had <laughs> I wish I had, but the, the, it's like the, this one community, nothing gets wasted. But at the same time, there's no rules and no laws because it was kind of overlooked by the Indian government. And so the whole place happened organically and everything that's thrown away gets recycled. That sounds lovely, but the only reason they're doing that is because that's the only way they can eat, isn't it? In some cases, yeah. yeah. So there's no welfare state there. Right. And you, that's the other thing, you are a fan of no welfare state, is that right? Uh, don't confuse not being a fan of the welfare state with not being a fan of wanting the best possible care for people because they're two quite separate things. I don't think a welfare state is the best way to provide care. That's interesting. So can you, you know, explain to someone as uh, ill-educated as me how that might work? Well, basically, tax is collected, given to the government or the state, and the state allocates it in all sorts of different ways. It's a very inflexible model, and it means that there's kind of set ways of being allocated care, and that set way is not always the best way of caring for that particular individual. For example, an unemployed person is given a set amount of money per week. Now, in in the charitable process, in the giving process, you know, the giver... You, you, that care that that person is given, that £40 a week... Now, sometimes that unemployed person might just need the money, but sometimes they might need their hand-holding, sometimes they might require anonymity, sometimes they might require a bit of public shaming in order to get them into doing something, sometimes they might require a kick up the backside. You know, different circumstances require different, different forms... 
different booths. shaming booth. Well, the but different circumstances booth. require different forms of care. Right. And when you have a top-down system uh, of, of state across, the, it's just impossible for that amount of flexibility to, to, to be to, to, to come into the welfare system. So you can't plan so something like that from the top. The alternative is what? I would leave money in people's pockets. I would tax them far less and let care be distributed locally. But what about this unemployed guy? He's not paying tax. No, but but if if we if if the let's the the problem at the moment. What's the most expensive purchase you will ever make in your life? Well, I hope it'll be um, a yacht. A yacht. <laughs> I don't know. I don't and most people say a house. Oh yes, that's. I should um, pay that off at some point. But <laughs> the most expensive purchase that you ever make in your life is, in fact, your government. Um, and over the course of your life, something like 50% of everything you ever earn goes to the government in tax. And it's constantly throughout your whole life. Mm-hmm. And in the... Ch- now, let's just imagine that you that's had... particularly galling, seeing as I've never voted for them. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, that's one of the, one of the kind of um, moral inconsistencies of the tax system, is you are often funding, with your labour, something that you don't agree with. Mm. And my big argument is to basically leave as much money in people's pockets as possible. But, but when you pay tax, you, you are then entitled to say, well, I've paid my tax, that person, you know, why is, why is the government not fixing that person there? Mm. Or why is the government not doing that? Whereas if you left money in people's pockets and there, there is no longer... You return the responsibility to individuals and communities to be responsible for that person there or fixing that thing there, rather than having it done on a state-down, top-down system. But is there any likelihood that people would care for each other in that model? Yes. Is there? When people have the responsibility to do so, we're human beings. Yeah. And human beings are horrible... But, you know, by Normally, and large. only through institutional means when they're obeying orders. Yeah. But I, that's the other thing about, you know, I don't know whether now, whether I'm talking about crony capitalism or capitalism, uh, the other one, is that thing of are we citizens or simply consumers? And I think as time has gone by in the last hundred years, we've just turned ourselves into consumers and that's yeah. all we that's our role and Thatcher you know I know we uh, we talked about her before but wasn't it her that said there's no such thing as society and I think some of those ideas worry me a little because I think we should reject that idea that we are anything other than each other's brother and sister I'm not entirely familiar with that quote but I think she was trying to make people more individually responsible I think that was her aim in saying that yeah yeah, but I think she also despised the idea of communities and unions and people calling each other comrade, etc. I'm conscious that over the course of this interview, I've done more of the talking than you have. And That's the idea why. of this interview is to get my guests talking. We've got about three minutes left. Oh, right. And okay. I, want to just, I want to hear Ben Norris talk for three minutes, and I'm sure that's what the listeners want as well. Um, so let's just, what should we talk about for the last three minutes? What are you doing with your life at the moment? What, are you, what, are you, what have you got planned? Uh, How are you going to arrest this situation of being an <laughs> underrecognised genius? Well, I, I you know, I, I still enjoy doing a stand-up thing as my job. I'm delighted that I don't have to have a real job. I feel that I'm slightly outside of society. But I am a consumer as well. Um, obviously, I have a mortgage, as you say, interest only, pay it off one day. 
Uh, three children who are lovely. They've just turned 12, triplets. They keep me pretty busy. And um, I have a motorcycle. How many gigs a week are you doing? I try and do five-ish. Yeah. It's quite hard to do five gigs a week at the moment, isn't it? I've got a motorcycle. No, I mean, just in terms (laughs) of the kind of recession of this in the circuit. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I mean, somehow that seems to be an average that I'm keeping up. You know, uh, I do the cutting edge at the comedy store a couple of times a month. That's a Tuesday night that I'm working where uh, I might not be otherwise. Quite often try and get a double whenever I can. And um, I've even had the odd corporate gig recently, uh, much to my delight and horror. Going to do Edinburgh next year? Uh, there is some talk of that in my head. Go and do a show at the Free Fringe. Did you say don't? Or I said go and do a show oh, at the Free Fringe. The last two times I've done Edinburgh was the Free Fringe. And you had a good time? Uh, really good, yeah. No pressure on you? Um, or much less pressure? Than yes, still pr- the pressure to get the flyers out and do the flyering and talk to people and get them into the show and... The first time I did it, I had a much better positioned venue. And uh, the second time I went back up the year after, my venue was just up an alley and on the left. And the difference that makes is yeah. uh, people are like, what's well, up there on the left? Mm. Yeah, no, not mate. sure, mate. You know, so it really makes it... If you can go, it's just through here, then you've got a chance. But, yeah, Edinburgh's a plan. Ben Norris, it's been a real pleasure talking to oh, you. If oh, people want to find out more about what you do, how yes. can they follow you? Well, I'm on Twitter, Benny underscore Norris, and uh, my website www.bennorris.co.uk And if you're a football manager, Ben Norris is also a very useful (laughs) left-back. If you need a job doing, he'll do it for you. Thanks very much for listening, folks. Uh, It's been a real pleasure talking to Ben and having you listen and watch. If you like the show, please uh, rate us, please review us, uh, please share it with a friend. Uh, Do all those things that help us build up a following. And I'll be back next week with more Stuff That Interests Me. (laughs) 